If you haven't already, let me invite you to open your Bible to the passage our friend Ben just read. 2 Samuel 11, you might know the story. It's one of the more famous ones in the Bible, certainly in in Samuel. And uh, I'd I'd like to consider what we can learn from the story this morning, what it teaches us about uh, the heart, our hearts, the heart of God, and how it leads us to Jesus. Does that sound okay? All right. Um, it's a heartbreaking story this morning. And I felt, I felt the heaviness of it this week as I was studying. Uh, it's a story of adultery, murder, lying, manipulation, cover-ups, is wickedness. And it's a story that, if we're honest, it's, it's far too common in human history. A person of power and authority using their power and authority to abuse and use those under them who are don't have the same kind of power to use their position of authority for self-advantage, self-fulfillment, self-pleasure versus looking at the good of and looking for the good of others. And I think the story shows us what the human heart is capable of. We see a little bit of the heart of God in the story. Uh, and I think in our cultural context, it's important to kind of see and explore how do we see the heart described in culture versus how it might be described in the scriptures and what are the differences there? In our current cultural context, Sexual desires specifically, but desires in general, are kind of talked about as if we were to give them full expression and yield to them, right? You guys with me? Sexual urges, they kind of carry us along. We're simply the recipients. You know, we don't have control over what really goes on in our heart. We just got to follow our hearts. In 1992, there was a big scandal that hit the news. Actor, director, writer, comedian Woody Allen began a scandalous relationship with his adopted daughter, who was far younger than him. He began dating the adopted daughter of his longtime partner, Mia Farrow. They had dated for over 10 years. She had appeared in over 10 of his films. They had this long relationship, and Alan broke it off to start dating the adopted daughter of Mia, a woman named Soon Yi, and he was 56 and she was 22, right? So (laughs) it's kind of a crazy... It's scandalous, right? And it struck me what he said when he was asked about this relationship. Why did, why did he do it? And I think what Woody Allen said kind of captures our current cultural moment. He said, the heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to those things. You meet someone and you fall in love and that's that. <laughs> in other words, it might be kind of, sh- I mean, it's shocking to date your adopted daughter and the age difference and, you know, to do that, it was and he just said, the heart wants what it wants. The implication is you, you have to follow it. <laughs> you yield to it. Or we sing the, as Roxette sings, right? You know the song? Listen to your heart when he's calling for you. Listen to your heart. There's nothing else you can do. I don't know where you're going. Or what does it say? I don't know when you're going and I don't know why, but listen to your heart. Before you tell them goodbye, I, you, you guys are with me at the melody, right? You know the song? <laughs> Listen to your heart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think in 2 Samuel, we see a little bit of what the human heart is capable of. We, we see the heart of God, and we see the need for the grace of God. So we're told it's the springtime, the time when kings usually go out into battle. And spring was the time for war because crops just started growing. It wasn't full harvest season yet, so you didn't need all hands on deck in the fields. It would be an opportune time for war. So it's springtime that year, 
it's time for King to go out to battle, and we're noted that David doesn't go out to war as well. Maybe he was, maybe he was had gotten kind of complacent. We were already told up to this point in the story that the Lord had granted victory to him on every side. So he's like, nah, you guys got this. I'm going to stay at my couch. We don't know why, but we're told he stays at home. And the commander of his armies, Joab, goes out to battle, and, and David stays in Jerusalem. And one day, maybe after David's woken up for his afternoon nap, right, it says, He's, he's waking up from his couch. That's also important. It's noted there. This is a place of great comfort. This guy's up on, the, on his roof, and he sees a woman bathing, a woman named Bathsheba. She's very beautiful. And verse 3 says, And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and came to her and lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, uncleanness but when she returned, then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, the little note there in, in parentheses, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, it kind of seems like a strange detail to us, but it's a detail that's in, given in reference to her menstrual cycle. So in other words, the author is telling us, the narrator is telling us, no one is going to get her pregnant but David. Like, David is the only one that got her pregnant. This is... This is how these things happen. The responsibility, there's no doubt in who got her pregnant. It's David. It's also worth noting in verse 3 that Bathsheba is not mentioned by name anywhere else in the story. From this point on, she's referred to as the wife of Uriah or simply the woman. And we're not given some details about the story. We're not told, you know, was, did Bathsheba give consent to this? Was this rape? Was this a kind of sexual abuse? Was she coerced into this? Did she want to do this? Did she feel like she had the right to say no to the king? And it's all the kind of questions that we have, right? And why is she referred to as the wife of Uriah or the woman? Why is she referred to by name? And it seems to be it's a narrative style, literary style to show the focus is on, the blame is on David and he wants the wife of another man. It's not to say Bathsheba is not important. She doesn't matter. She's worthless. It's a way of reminding us that the focus of the story is on David is going after the wife of another man. And not just another man, but this is Uriah the Hittite. Uriah is not just some guy. He's not just some random soldier in the Israelite army. This, is, this would have been someone who knew David, who fought with David, who fought for David. At the very least, as I was studying, commentators were saying the fact that David could see her bathing from the roof of his house signifies that their houses were close together. So they had some sort of closeness and relationship, but it also was most likely that Uriah was one of the guys, one of those loyal friends. He is referred to as one of the mighty 30 who risked his life for David, went after David, was helping David when David was being hunted down by Saul. Most likely Uriah was one of those guys who was with David. He's been fighting with David a long time. So this is not just some random soldier. This is one of the mighty men. This is Uriah. And it's this man's wife that he covets, that he commits adultery with, that he murders, that he lies to cover up. I mean, you don't really have to know all the Ten Commandments to know. That seems like a lot of them right there. (laughs) At every step of the way, too, when David had the opportunity, he digs deeper in. It's so heartbreaking. He covers up, he doesn't come forward with the truth, he hides and he tries to fix. So after he sleeps with Bathsheba and she's pregnant, David tries to make Uriah think that he's the father, right? Didn't have Maury, Dr. Phil, DNA testing. Maybe he hopes that 
you know, Bathsheba just won't tell her husband about this whole thing. So David sends to Joab to send Uriah home, and, and <laughs> it's kind of comical, really. The, the word is that David, he's like, tell me about the war. How's Joab? How are things going? He doesn't care. He has an intent here. He was bringing Uriah home so that he would go to his wife and sleep with her. And David assumes that he would stay overnight. He'd spend time with his wife, and that when she was pregnant, he sees that she's pregnant, he's going to assume the child's mine. I did this but Uriah doesn't go down to his house. He sleeps at the door of the king's house with the servants of his Lord. And when David asks, why didn't you go down to your house? Uriah says this, verse 11, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servant of the Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. (laughs) Uriah is such a good soldier. It's like, I'm going to go and spend time with my wife and my brothers are out in the war fighting, sleeping in tents in the open field. This plan doesn't work. So David tries to try another way. And how do you convince someone to do something that they don't want to do? One of the ways you can use alcohol, right? Human history, this is what we do. So maybe I can, maybe I can kind of deaden his conscience his commitment, his convictions, if I just get him drunk enough. <laughs> so he finds us to his house, has a meal, gets him drunk, and he doesn't, even, he doesn't do it again. He sleeps on the couch. And this plan doesn't work, so David's like, you know, just, he's probably conniving, thinking at this point, he's like, I'm not going to tell Uriah. So I'm going to murder him. He t- sends a letter to Joab. He tells Joab, hey, Put Uriah out where the fighting is the fiercest. Put him in the front lines. And then pull back from him. So he's going to die. Withdraw your forces from him so that he might be struck down and die. And this is what happens. And some of the servants of David die, and and the narrative says among them, Uriah also died. And then messengers from Joab are sent to David. And the messengers said to David, verse 23, the men get advantage over us and came out against us in the field but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And listen to how David responds. Thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. He's trying to comfort Joab for committing murder. What does he say? The sword devours one and now another. Oh, this, these things just happen. No, <laughs> man, you planned this. This was your plan from the beginning. This wasn't a random battle strategy and there happened to be some casualties. You planned for this man to die and then you're trying to cover it up. In verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And then, at the very end, we're told, how does the Lord feel about this? Like the first mention of his name. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's a very dramatic story, and this is how it ends. Or we're going to continue the response next week. Super excited. Carrie Jester is going to preach his first sermon ever. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, so this is the incident. Next week, we get the response. But I do think we can learn something from this chapter. I think this chapter teaches us a lot. 
is a very vivid story, dramatic story. A story you might think that would make a great drama, movie, or show. <laughs> Backstabbing, manipulation, murder, adultery, just has all the makings, right? Doesn't it? And it's significant that the villain in the story is King David. The, the, the man who's, quote, a man after God's own heart. It's significant, I think it shows us what the human heart is capable of, what resides in the human heart. And it's significant who the character is that commits these horrendous acts of evil. Because the temptation might be for us to read the story and to say something like this, wow, that's awful. I could never do something like that. Can you believe that? I'd never do that. Adultery, murder, lying, scheming, terrible. God, I'm so glad I'm not that. I'm so glad I've never done that. And before we start to feel too good about ourselves and compare ourselves, Jesus comes along in the New Testament and he says, hey, if you've looked at someone with lustful intent, you've committed adultery with them in your heart. Oh, thanks, Jesus. And, and Jesus says, you've heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So you watch porn, you cover it up, you lie to your wife, you're angry, you're David. This is what Jesus is saying. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes this. If anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, and all the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasures of power of hatred, for there are two things inside of me competing for with the human self, which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who regularly goes to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. Of course, it's better to be neither. So there's something that's worse than being an adulterer. There's something that's worse than being a murderer. There's something that's worse than being a liar. There's something that's worse than being a manipulator, and that is being proud that you're not one of those things. Pride is deadly and dangerous. Pride blinds you to these very sins. Uh, there's a story of a, a minister and a Boy Scout and a computer expert. And they're the only passengers on this small plane. And the pilot comes to the back and tells them, hey guys, something's wrong with the plane, the plane's going down, and by the way, we've only got three parachutes. So I've, I've, I'm a father, I've got young kids at home, I'm going to take one, and he jumps out. <laughs> and the computer whiz says, I, I should have one of those parachutes. I am the smartest man in the world, and everyone needs me. And he took one and jumps out. So it's left with the minister and the Boy Scout. And the minister turns to the Boy Scout with a sad smile, and he says, no, you're young. You have a long life ahead of you. I've had a rich life. You go ahead and take the last one. Go and take the final parachute, and I'll go down with the plane. And the Boy Scout looks at the minister, and he says, relax, reverend. The smartest man in the world just picked up my knapsack and jumped out. LAUGHTER the wisdom in the scriptures instructs us, and this story illustrates, pride is deadly and dangerous, isn't it? And scriptures teach us, pride comes before destruction and arrogant spirit before a fall. 
King David was a man who wrote some of the most beautiful worship poetry in the Bible. Psalm 5, 5 through 6. Listen to what he writes. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. It's what he knows about God. Psalm 17, 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Psalm 18. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. Psalm 48. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And before we go, what a hypocrite. This is what's the problem with Christianity in the church. Bunch of hypocrites. The king who wrote these psalms did this. And I think here's, here's what it teaches us. Not write them off, not dismiss them. I could never do that. But it teaches us that the capacity to do this kind of evil, to commit the worst kind of acts of evil, a horrible dis- disregard for others and their welfare, that lies at inside every human heart. Not just David's. Even people described as a man after God's own heart can do this kind of evil and wickedness. Even the most godly people, do you know this? Even pastors, can you believe that? Can sin? Even the most godly people, even the people that you think are the most committed to to your church or to the Bible studies, those good church folk, even the best people are capable of this. I've heard stories and sermons preached on David and Bathsheba that essentially put the blame on the circumstances arise. They'll say something like, you see, it tells us there when kings go out to battle, and David stays at home. He's just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Essentially boiling down the message to, if David wasn't in these circumstances, he wouldn't have done this evil. So you just got to watch out for what circumstances you have. Change your circumstances. Things will go better for you. And you can search the scriptures and find that's not a message that's consistent with the Bible. <laughs> you change your circumstances, you don't change your life. There's something deeper that's going on. I think the warning from the story and the overarching message of the scripture is not the reason the way that you are, the reason why you do the things that you do is simply because of your circumstances. Those can influence you. Those can affect you, but they're not the ultimate reason. A famous preacher of many years ago, he had a clock in his church and it was well known that this clock didn't tell good time. It was too slow at times. It was too fast at times and it resisted all attempts to, to keep time. We've got a digital atomic clock right here. That thing's not breaking, but Analog clocks, they can do some funky things. And finally, after this, this kind of fame of this clock was spread in the church and throughout the town, the, the preacher put up a sign under the clock and it said this, don't blame the hands, the trouble lies deeper. The same is true of people. The real trouble does not lie in circumstances, it lies in the heart. What, what doesn't show on the surface, the trouble lies within the heart. If we think to ourselves, I could never do what David did. I'm not capable of that kind of evil. You're actually a step closer in that direction than you think. When you compare yourself to others, you have the mentality, I could never do that. You diminish your own sin. You turn from your own sin, your own failures, your own flaws, and they, they grow and, and actually start to cloud your, your very judgment and reality. Jesus' half-brother James said it like this. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by 
his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. So he's talking about sin here being like a seed that grows. And when it's fully grown, it produces death. Her pastor gave the illustration once of, consider an acorn tree, how big like an oak tree can get from a single acorn. Do so you look at a big oak tree and say, from that little thing? No. But it's a little seed that grows that can become this huge, massive tree. On the surface, it would seem ridiculous that out of a little acorn comes a big tree. But look at your life. The pastor said, do you see self-pity, resentment, envy, jealousy, hurt, pride, self-centeredness? Don't you know what those things will become if they fall on the right soil, if they get watered properly? Yet you're tolerating them. Yes, because we don't believe that we're really capable. They're, they're little things. We couldn't do something like that. Little envy, little jealousy, little pride. Say, so I'm, I'm more enlightened than others. I'm more upright than others. I'm a better person than others. I'm more kind than others. I'm more committed to the environment than others. I'm more committed to this good cause than others. Your self-image is based on I'm better than other people. And as a result, you screen out the reality of what those seeds are doing, those sins. So you live with them. And when they sprout, you're shocked, but it's your fault. We're no better than King David. We have the capacity for this kind of evil in our hearts to commit this kind of evil. So there we can learn from the story not to treat our sin lightly, not to diminish, not to minimize, not to excuse away, not to say, oh, well, look at that person. Mine aren't that bad. Little thoughts of lust, little putting up of envy, little jealousy. You know, I don't have a problem with it. <laughs> I just have a little. I get angry and have thoughts of revenge, but I don't act on them. We're called to walk in the light and to confess and to forsake. And in the story, we see what the human heart is capable of. We also see something of the heart of God. The very end there, it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That on the one hand, it's a comforting verse, isn't it? That when the Lord sees this kind of injustice, this kind of evil, this kind of abuse of another, this kind of self-exploitation, while others are left in the wake of destruction and ruin, that God is displeased with that. That's comforting. It's comforting because we can trust that the great evils that have been committed against us, the ways that people have sinned against us, the injustice that has been done to us, the ways that you've been hurt and abused and exploited and mistreated and lied to and gossiped about, people have used their positions of power, not for your welfare and your flourishing, but for their own personal advancement. The Lord sees that and is displeased with it. You don't have to avenge yourself, God says. Vengeance belongs to me. I'm going to avenge. That's comforting to us. He sees our hurts. He doesn't take pleasure in that. He will judge that. He will, in his timing, bring justice to it. And in David's case, very quickly. It's also humbling and a warning to us that God is displeased with the way that we have also lied and abused and hurt and mistreated others. doesn't take pleasure in that. And as we see this, as we consider the fact that God is displeased with evil, we see the need for the grace of God. Because the storyline of the Bible doesn't present characters to us as good people to try to follow, primarily. 
Bible isn't about good people who prove themselves good and they're rewarded for it in the end. So just be more like them. The Bible is about a gracious God, a God full of compassion, full of steadfast love and mercy, who continually pursues, works with, goes after, gives grace to those who don't deserve it, they don't earn it, and oftentimes once they receive his grace, they don't even fully appreciate it. That's the, that, the, the Bible's about that. God working like that, his grace like that. The best people on earth, the most righteous people who have lived and have, and, and, they haven't been given, as we see in David, an example, the most righteous people on earth who have lived will not overcome themselves. They will not be able to fix the problems of self-righteousness and evil in their hearts, their flaws and their failures. They, they can't work hard enough to get rid of that. And the only way to earn victory is to turn from themselves and trust in the grace of God and to cling to the compassion and mercy of God. There is an English a Presbyterian minister is a Puritan guy in the 1600s named guy named John Flavel. If you can read his books, I have a lot of respect for you. They're very deep and hard to follow. He said this though, he said, they that know God will be humble and they that know themselves cannot be proud. If we are just like David, if in ourselves we have the capacity for this kind of evil, this story invites us to humble ourselves. If this kind of act displeases God, if sin displeases God, we are invited to humble ourselves and to realize that if it were up to ourselves, our whole life would be displeasing to him. Yet the story invites us to consider the need for grace and to consider that the fact that God in his grace and in his compassion sent a better king than David. A king who doesn't use his power and his authority and his position to take, to exploit, to abuse, and to use, but rather gives his life. He serves others at the cost of his own life. A king who didn't stay up in his palace and take and use and lust, but associated with the lowly, he descended. He humbled himself to associate with sinners like you and me. A king who gave up his power and position to take on the form of a servant. A king who gave up his own life that was fully pleasing to God so that adulterers and liars and murderers like David and like you and me can be forgiven, Amen. can be accepted, can be declared righteous, can be given a new heart, a heart that desires to follow after the will and the ways of Jesus, a heart that even when we do things that please God, we have been given the status and the righteousness that, that did not change because of our sin. That's amazing. So I pray, church, as we consider the story, it's a heavy story. It's not a very heartwarming story. The story next week is continuing along those paths. But it's a story that invites us to explore and, and realize and remember that we are no better that the same evil that was in David's heart is in our hearts and, and the response is to humble ourselves before the Lord and to depend upon his grace and to thank the Father for sending the better King Jesus to not use us and exploit us, but to give his life up for us that we might be declared righteous, that we might achieve new status, new family, new position, new love, and that as we are motivated out of that, as we have receiving this, this kind of love, we in turn want to be conduits 
and instruments in the Redeemer's hand. We want to be those kind of people who bring this kind of love, this kind of kingdom, this kind of reign of a new and greater king into our lives in whatever way that looks. As we are in our neighborhood and we are in our workplace and our families, we want to be the kind of people where the reign and the rule of Jesus is displayed in the way that we operate. So may we humble ourselves and not take our sins and our failures too lightly. Let us walk in the light and forsake our sin and let us cling to the grace of God that we need every day and thank Jesus and enjoy his presence, this king who embraces and doesn't exploit. He loves, he doesn't lust. He gave up his own life instead of taking it from others. Let's pray and worship this Jesus now, amen. Father, we thank you that although the the trajectory of the world, this this human heart is displayed here and, and basically the underlying premise of what can I get out? What can you do for me? This heart that leads to all kinds of abuse. People who are being abused and have abused others are, it's not characterized from love. And we thank you that you see a story like this and it grieves your heart in how Uriah and how Bathsheba, how they were treated and how David responds and the acts of wickedness that he, that ensue, the cover-ups, the lying, the manipulation. Lord, thank you that you see us. You see our hurt. You see the ways that people have sinned against us. Help us to trust that you will enact judgment, that vengeance belongs to you, that we can rest in your goodness and your justice. And Lord, I pray that this kind of story that we read and as we study the scriptures together, and particularly that seems like a big theme in Samuel is the need for us to be humble and depend upon your grace. Would you help us to grow in this, in this ways? Help us to descend deeper into humility. Help us to associate with those who are struggling and sinning that, that we can show others the same love that you have shown us. Thank you for the ways that you've done this in this church. And would you continue to give us grace to, to be a blessing to others in our communities, in our neighborhoods, and in our workplaces. We love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen.